Well, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 9. Mark 9, we continue our walk through the gospel of Mark. I hope that you'll settle in and hear from God's word this morning. As you turn there, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of going somewhere, maybe to another part of the world where things were so different from what you're used to that all your instincts were wrong. You wanted to drive on the right side of the road, but they drove on the left. You think it's polite to look someone in the eye, but they consider it rude. Clothing that seemed very appropriate for you maybe was off-putting or offensive to them. Maybe you've been in a situation like this where you've realized that what comes naturally to you isn't going to accomplish what you really want to accomplish. That if you do what your instincts tell you to do, things aren't going to work out the way you hoped. Well, in many ways, I think this describes the experience we should have as we read the scriptures. Especially as we consider the teachings of Jesus. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I've heard it referred to, maybe you've heard this, referred to as the upside-down kingdom. It's the reality that so often what Jesus says seems upside-down and backwards from our natural way of thinking. So much of what Jesus teaches is it's counterintuitive to the way we naturally think and live. I'll give you some examples. Jesus says that if you want to live, then you have to die. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. Along the same lines, while our our natural inclination is to think of ourselves first and prioritize self, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The call of Jesus is to take our eyes off of self. Yet our inclination is to always prioritize self. It's not natural. Let me give you another one. According to our instincts, it seems right that we should hate our enemies and look for every opportunity for revenge. But of course you know. You know what Jesus says. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You understand now what I mean when I say it's an upside-down kingdom? The ways of Jesus are countercultural. He says, blessed are the persecuted. That suffering is the way of the righteous. That the exalted will be humbled. And that the humbled will be exalted. We can go on and on. The reality is, if we truly follow the ways of Jesus, we should constantly find ourselves living in ways that are different than the world around us. The kingdom of Jesus operates differently than the kingdom of the world. The more we read our Bibles, the more we should be forced to recognize that we are called to live differently than the way we act naturally. 
Being a disciple of Jesus means changing our ways to his ways. It means changing what we value. Changing what we desire. Changing what we long for and love and pursue. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be given a new way of seeing and interpreting the world. This morning we are in Mark chapter 9. This morning we are picking up in a section where Jesus is teaching his disciples what it looks like to follow him. And we hear something again from Jesus that is counterintuitive. Jesus says that being great in the kingdom of God starts with humility. That the way to greatness is the way of service. That if we want to be great, we have to be the greatest servants. Not only does he call us to live this way, but what we're going to see and be reminded of in our passage this morning is that this is the way that he lived. Jesus set an example of what it means to be a servant of all. And now he calls us to be these kind of people. Servants. And he says that this is the path to greatness. That's what you're, where we're headed this morning. I hope you have your Bibles and you're open to Mark chapter 9. Our passage this morning starts in verse 30 and goes to verse 37. Hear the word of God. Jesus and his disciples came to Capernaum. And he was... Excuse me. From there they went on and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And when they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone be first, he must be the last, the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives Not me, but him who sent me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. Church, this is an important passage. Here we see the heart of our Lord, the one who came not to serve Not to be served, rather, but to serve. He came, took on flesh, willing to die for us. And now he's calling us to follow his example, to live the way he lived, to live in humility, to live as his servants. I think this is a passage that should cause all of us to pause, to consider our hearts to think about the way we live, how we serve. Are we living this way? Are we living the way God has called us to live? As we pick up in the passage, let me give you some context. 
As we come to this section of the Gospel of Mark, we recognize that the, the focus of Jesus' ministry is changing. Up to this point, we've seen a fairly public ministry. But more and more, he's stepping away from this public ministry and spending his time focusing on his disciples, teaching them and preparing them for what is coming. He has his eyes set towards Jerusalem. If you've been with us, then you know that a large part of Jesus' ministry has taken place in the region of Galilee. Most recently, he's been up in the area of Caesarea Philippi, but as we come to our passage, we're told that he is returning to Galilee. He's, he's passing through, but we see there that he doesn't want anyone to know. Verse 30, they went from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know it. This is a place where he's well-known, where he's spent a lot of time. But as he comes, he's seeking secrecy, privacy. But why? Well, it seems apparent that Jesus, like I said, is, is turning his attention very purposely towards his disciples. This is a time for him to, to teach them and prepare them for the things that are to come. We see the content of his teaching there in verse 31. He was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Notice this. They did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. You know, a lot of times Jesus speaks in parables, speaks in metaphors and word pictures, things that leave people confused. That's not the way he speaks here. Here we see that he's speaking plainly. He makes a very, very clear announcement about what is going to happen. And maybe you remember, maybe this sounds familiar. This is actually the second time that Jesus has made this announcement this clearly. If you have your Bibles open, you can look back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed. After three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. So we've seen two announcements, very similar. In both cases, Jesus talks about himself being handed over or delivered. He talks about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Two very similar predictions Sadly, there's also a similarity in the response of the disciples. They don't understand and they don't believe. Remember, remember that the last time Jesus made this announcement, Peter stood up in protest. Peter insisted that Jesus would not suffer and die. Jesus rebuked him. And now he says these things again. And again, the disciples, they don't know what to do with it. They don't have a category for these kinds of predictions. They don't have a category for a suffering Messiah. They heard the words of Jesus, but they don't understand. And Mark tells us, not only do they, do not, do they not understand, but they're afraid to ask for clarification. Verse 32, they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask? Well, maybe they still have that 
image in their mind of Jesus rebuking Peter. I don't want that to happen again. It's possible. I think the reason is more likely that they simply do not want to know more. They've heard enough to know that what Jesus is saying is very different than what they desire, very different than what they expect, and they don't want to know more. They're afraid to hear more. As if, if they don't hear it, it won't happen. As I've thought about this reaction of the disciples, hearing something they don't like and deciding to ignore it, I think I see something of ourself in them. Maybe you've been there. You hear or read a hard saying of Jesus. And instead of stopping and trying to understand it, you move on. Afraid to linger and to really think about the difficult commands of Christ. Instead, we skip over cross-bearing. We skim through the verses on suffering. We rush to the promises of the kingdom. The promises of the love of Christ and the reign of Christ. Church, we have to know that if we skip the hard teachings of Jesus, we are robbing ourselves and we are setting ourselves up for heartache. And that's exactly what we see with the disciples. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, but they don't dare ask questions. They're afraid to know more. In just a second, we'll see how quickly they move on and try to distance themselves from this announcement of Christ. But first consider this, that this announcement from Jesus of his death, it's not only a prediction, but it's placed here in this context by God through Mark as an example to us of the humility of Jesus. I trust that as we keep working through the passage, you'll understand why I'm saying this. The next paragraph is about being a servant. But before we get that, Jesus announces the ultimate act of humility. And while this passage focuses on the response of the disciples, I think we should also consider what it meant for Jesus to say these things. As he said them out loud, he knew he was announcing things that would really happen to him. And we know that Jesus doesn't walk into this unaffected. Think about the, the garden where he, he weeps and asks God, if it be your will, would this cup pass from me? Here's Jesus saying out loud for the disciples, but maybe also for himself. Saying out loud what's going to happen. And we see here, both the humanity of Jesus and the humility of Jesus. God himself living among sinful men and accepting and declaring this reality, I am going to be betrayed. I'm going to be delivered over by God the Father to the hands of sinful men. They will kill me. Don't miss this, church. 
The cross does not come as a surprise to Christ. No, he predicted it and he walks towards it. And that is the ultimate example of servanthood. The ultimate example of humility. Isn't this the message that we're so familiar with from Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have in Philippians 2 is a glimpse of the heart of Jesus. God, very God, he came and he walked toward suffering for us. We come to Mark 9, we see Jesus telling his disciples what's coming. I think God, through Mark, placed this announcement where he did to stand in stark contrast to what we see next. Verse 33. Jesus and the disciples came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was greatest. Isn't that a jarring contrast? From the servant heart of Jesus, his willingness to walk towards the cross, to now hear his disciples arguing among themselves about who is greater. Once again, it's clear that they don't have any concept of what's coming. They certainly don't understand the nature of the kingdom. Do you have the scene in your mind? Mark tells us that they've come to Capernaum, which is a place they've spent a lot of time. Remember, this is the place that Peter and Andrew are from. Most likely the house they're in here is the house of Peter and Andrew. As they get settled into the house, Jesus asks them a question about, about the conversation they'd had while they were traveling. Now, as I think about this, a couple of things stand out. First, Jesus asks a question that he knows the answer to. Jesus knows all things. He knows even the thoughts of their hearts. But he asks them because he, he wants this opportunity to teach them. He brings it up. We see the guilty conscience of the disciples. Think about this. They'd been on a long trip. No doubt they had had many, many conversations along the way. Yet when Jesus asks them, what were you talking about? They know exactly which conversation he's referring to. We see their guilty conscience in their silence. Verse 34. They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. As I think about the way I've always heard this story told, I think we usually jump straight into shaking our heads and mocking the silly debate. Seems childish, doesn't it? To talk about who's greater. I think that's where we normally go first. We, we consider how foolish of a conversation this is. But it's worth noting that this conversation doesn't come out of nowhere. Remember, 
The disciples are people just like you and me, operating out of the worldview that they've always had. I said at the beginning that as we follow Jesus, we're going to go through this process of having our thinking changed. Before we come to Christ, we only see things through the perspective of the flesh. And for for many of us, the the process of of learning the ways of Christ, of changing our, our perspective, of seeing things His way, it's a slow process. We see that here with the disciples. Even though they've heard what Jesus has said, they're still operating based on the way they've always thought about the Messiah. Yes, he's mentioned things about suffering and death, but they still only have this concept of Messiah as king. So what are they doing? They're hearing what they want to hear. They're holding so tightly to their formal way of thinking that they're not listening to the plain words of Jesus. I wonder if you've ever been guilty of this of being selective in your hearing of Jesus. When he says things we like, we are quick to to hear and to sing and to praise him. But when he says radical things, we rationalize. He must not mean it the way it sounds. We ignore it. We go on with our own way of thinking. And that's what we see with the disciples. They have their minds fixed on a coming kingdom, on Jesus as a king. They don't have a category for suffering and death, and so they don't listen. They're planning for a kingdom. We're going to read shortly that they're going to head towards Jerusalem, which no doubt is where they expect the kingdom to come. So as they prepare to head towards Jerusalem, they're primed for this conversation. And this is the kind of talk that they had heard all their lives. This conversation didn't begin with them. This was the kind of conversation they had heard from their religious leaders all of their lives. This time, there was a huge emphasis within the the, the religious community on status and rank. Constantly jockeying for position. You may remember what Jesus says in Matthew 23 about the religious leaders. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts. They love the best seats in the synagogues, the greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi by others. And this is the the kind of person that the, the disciples have grown up seeing. They've been told that in religious life, there's a levels of greatness. And of course, they had, had never had any rank or status among the scribes, the Pharisees, but now they see themselves on the ground floor of something far greater. Their expectations and desire for greatness leave them blind to anything Jesus has to say about humility or suffering. They have their eyes fixed on themselves. So we think about that. This is what's easy. The easy thing for us to do is to judge the disciples for their pride and their egos and their desire for greatness. But friends, 
If you read this passage and all you see is the pride and the ego of the disciples, and you don't consider your own heart, then you're short-sighted. This is a temptation that we are all susceptible to. The disciples were focused on themselves, and we all struggle with this temptation. While the disciples' pride led them to be wanting to be seen as great, this same heart issue can manifest itself in all kinds of ways in us. Sometimes pride is the desire to be seen. Sometimes pride looks like not wanting to be seen. Sometimes pride can look like self-promotion. Sometimes pride can look like self-demotion. We wallow in our pain, seeking attention for our weakness. It's a form of pride. Pride is not only found in those with a high view of self. Pride is also found in those who have an overly low view of self. Pride is preoccupation with ourselves. And it manifests itself in different ways. So whether you struggle with thinking you should be exalted... Or maybe you struggle with the desire to be ignored. The desire to keep to yourself. Whichever way you fall on that spectrum, the response of Jesus, what Jesus says to the disciples, is for you. See, the call of Jesus is to think more of others than ourselves. To serve others more than ourselves. Do you see how that can manifest itself? Both in wanting to be seen and also, I just want to be left alone. This too could be a heart of pride. So Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 35. He says, he sat down, which was the position of a teacher. He sat down and called to the 12 and said to them, if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The disciples had a desire for greatness. And Jesus, notice, he doesn't necessarily condemn the desire for greatness, but he does redefine what it means to be great. Takes us back to the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. In God's economy, those who are great are those who humble themselves as servants. So different than what the world teaches us about greatness. We are taught from a very early age to climb the ladder. We're taught to value position and status and recognition. Maybe not explicitly, but it's found in so many different areas of life. We are groomed to desire these things. Jesus redefines the path to greatness. Jesus says that those who will be first must be last. Jesus says that The way to greatness is the way of service. To be great, we must be the greatest servants. It's a call to humility. As I say that, I want to be clear about this. I think sometimes we can hear this call to servanthood and think of a call to passivity or to just disappear into the crowd. Sometimes we can confuse humility with retreat, or with inactivity. You think you're pleasing to God because you don't desire a platform. 
you think you're pleasing to God, that you're humble because you're quiet. Humility is about more than avoiding the obvious pitfalls of platform. The way Jesus defines it here, it's a call to go and to serve, not to hide. What Jesus is describing here is not withdrawing from people, it's going towards people. It's a call to serve. What does it look like to be a servant? It means counting others more significant than yourself. It means considering the cares and concerns of others and looking for ways to meet their needs. Go again to Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, having this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. Reminded of the example of Christ. The example of self-sacrifice. The humility that drove him to, to give himself for us. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. Servant of all. We're called to be servants, which means being people of compassion. Of humility. I've always liked the definition of humility that says, humility is not necessarily thinking less of ourselves, but it's thinking about ourselves less. Humility is not always thinking less of ourselves, but it is always thinking of ourselves less. Now, some of us may think too highly of ourselves. Some of us would do good to think less of ourselves. But perhaps you have a very realistic view of yourself, but you think of yourself too much. The call to humility is not necessarily to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. To serve others. It's a call to be a servant of all. Which doesn't mean that we become passive or weak. Again, Jesus redefines things. We can hear the call to servanthood and think of someone who's constantly at everyone's beck and call. Jesus isn't calling us to fearful people-pleasing. He's calling us to humble service. What's the difference? The difference is between serving out of fear and guilt and serving out of joy. The difference is between serving out of cowardice and coercion and serving out of courage and desire. He's not calling us to, to bow down and be ordered around. No, he's calling us to go and serve out of strength the way Jesus did. What we see in Jesus is not being ordered around as a servant for hire. No, Jesus served out of love and out of strength. He went towards those in need. He sought out the weak and the helpless. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave himself as a ransom for many. This is our example. We've seen the example, we've heard the call, and the question is, how are we doing? How are we doing in our effort to serve others? 
or, or maybe this is the question, what's your attitude as you serve others? Are you serving to be seen? Or are you serving out a heart of humility and love? Do you serve only those who could pay you back, who return service for service? Or do you serve those who could never pay you back? Think of the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The example of Jesus is an example of serving those who could never repay him. He loved us when we hated him. And this is the gospel, isn't it? That while we were sinners and enemies, Christ died for us. We deserve nothing, and yet he came and lived among us. He humbled himself and gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He died so that all who come to him can be saved. And friends, if that doesn't amaze you, and if the example of Jesus doesn't drive you to a greater humility, to more selfless service, then I would suggest that maybe you don't understand Jesus. You don't understand the cross. Jesus is the example of what it means to be a servant of all. If you lack motivation, if you're, if you're listening, you're thinking, I, I don't even have the motivation to serve others. Can I just encourage you to spend time looking to Jesus, spend time looking at the cross, spend time considering what he has done for you. The example of Jesus should motivate us to humble service. Jesus said, this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. This is the example of Jesus. In Mark 9, we hear Jesus telling his disciples the way in which he's going to humble himself. But they don't understand it. We see their lack of understanding in what they value. They want to be seen as great. They value position and status instead of humility and service. Jesus takes this opportunity. He's, he's preparing them for what's to come, and he takes this opportunity to describe the greatness of humility. And then he illustrates it, and this brings us to the last two verses of our text. Jesus uses a, a real-life parable. Verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I'm sure you probably know what it's like to sit in a living room. Trying to have a conversation while at the same time kids are darting around the room. Maybe crawling over your lap. Seems like that may be what's going on here. Jesus is in Peter and Andrew's home. He's having this important conversation, but there are children around. 
After Jesus describes what it means to be a servant, we're told that he takes one of the kids. He picks them up and he sets them in his lap. He uses the child as a parable of sorts. But if we're going to understand the parable, we should start by understanding the status of children during this period of time. Now, I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's pretty well known that on the whole, this culture thought about children different than we do. So we can't just take our perspective and lay it in here. We live in families that are often, very often, children-centric. But that wasn't the case then. It's not to say that children weren't loved or cared for, but they weren't the center of attention. Now, as children became older, and became more useful, they were thought of more highly. But young children didn't get the same kind of attention that they do now. And it could be because of the, the very high rate of child mortality. The point is this. Children were often overlooked, forgotten. And it would have been most unusual for a teacher or an important leader to take time to show interest in a child. But what we see here is Jesus taking notice for the lowly and forgotten. He pulls a child into his lap and he says to his disciples, to these men who were concerned about status and about being seen, he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That word receives, it's a, it's a term of hospitality. It's the idea of welcoming, welcoming someone, showing kindness and care for another person. Jesus holds a child, the symbol of someone who's often overlooked and forgotten. He says, if you receive them, you receive me. If you welcome and show kindness to them, you welcome and show kindness to me. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve the forgotten. Do you want to be near to the king? Love the unlovely. Do you want to be great? Welcome those that the world sees as small. Jesus says, the way you draw near to me is by drawing near to the overlooked and to the forgotten. By caring for those who can't care for themselves. It's a call to humility. Jesus says that if we love and serve the weak, we love and serve him. It's very similar to what he says in Matthew 25. Remember he says that, there are those who saw he was hungry and gave him food, who saw he was thirsty and gave him drink. People said, well, when did we do these things? Jesus says, when you saw the sick or in prison and visited them, when you clothed the naked, when you gave food to the hungry, you, as you did any of these things, to the least of these, you did them to me. It's very similar to what He's saying in Mark 9, the way we show our love for Jesus, the way we honor him, is by serving the needy around us. And that's not to say that we don't serve everyone. It's not to say that we can ignore the seemingly self-sufficient. 
But the mark of a true servant is someone who loves and serves those who could never repay them. And isn't that the example of Christ? The call is to think of ourselves less often and to give our time and concern to others. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of God? Then get low. Do you want to be exalted? Then live in humility. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. If we want to be the kind of people that God has called us to be, we must consider our hearts, church. Who are you serving most passionately? Would you take a minute to to hear these questions and consider? Who do you serve most passionately? Yourself or others? Where does your mind spend most of its time? On the things you desire or on the needs of others? You could think of it this way. Maybe it's a little more blunt. Who is that person that you're slow to serve because you think that your own time or your own things are more important. We probably all have room to grow here. We're all inclined to look for ways to exalt ourselves and less inclined to exalt others. Let me speak specifically. I want to remind you that you don't have to go far to find those that need you to serve them. In fact, there are those within our church body who need you, who need your care, who need your concern, who need your encouragement. My fear is that we've gone through this past year, we've become more and more comfortable with being isolated. I wonder when the last time is that you texted someone in the church to check on them called someone that you hadn't seen in a while to encourage them. Spent time praying for one another. I'm afraid that we're getting more and more comfortable with being disconnected. More and more comfortable with simply looking after our own interests. Tempted to prioritize ourselves more than others. And yet we follow a God who left the glory of heaven and came to live among us. Sacrificed his own comfort for our salvation. We have a God who is willing to give his life for us. Are we willing to give our lives in the service of others? Has your life this week demonstrated a heart of service? Or has your life this week demonstrated that you're someone who cares most about yourself. We're called to follow the example of Christ. To love as he loves, to give as he's given, to serve as he serves. Maybe you need to take time this afternoon to make a plan for the week to come. A plan of how you can serve others more passionately. Church, I pray that God would make us a people that are great because of humility. A people who are exalted because of our faithful hearts of service. Not for our own glory, but for the glory of the one who gave himself for us. 
Would you join me in praying and asking God to make us this kind of people? God, we come before you. And God, we are in awe of the sacrifice you made on our behalf. Of how low you brought yourself so that we could be saved. Of how much you sacrificed yourself so that we could be forgiven. And God, we now recognize how tempted we could be to want to make ourselves great. We desire position and status, the favor of others. But you've called us to love others more than we love ourselves, to serve others more than we serve ourselves. God, would you make us this kind of people? Would you make us a church that's known for humility? God, would you forgive us of the ways that we have not lived up to this standard? And would you give us grace to grow? Would you make today a day where we become a people more committed to being servants? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.